This is Rakesh Patel, and you're listening to the EB-5 Fix. Welcome to the EB-5 Fix. My name is Rakesh Patel. I'm with partner, managing partner with the Patel Law Group and uh, immigration attorney for EB-5 Investors. Um, we appreciate you tuning in to uh, listen to us. I'm joined here by my colleague and friend, Shay Armstrong. Shay, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hey everyone, uh, Shay here. Uh, I am uh, Shay Armstrong. I am a partner at Bradley's Dallas office, and I'm an EB-5 deal attorney. Awesome. Well, Shay, we have a special guest with us today. Do you want to introduce our guest? Oh, wow, yeah. So I've done this a bunch of times now, so I'm pretty good at it. This is Matt, the infamous Matt Gordon. He is New York's finest EB-5 practitioner. He's got an immense experience on the educational side, on the uh, legislative side, on the EB-5 deal side. And so I've worked with Matt for many, many years. We were like-minded in the sense of our lobbying efforts in DC on what we wanted to see for the most part happen with the EB-5 program. We saw some of it happen, some of it didn't, uh, but I'll let, hey, Matt, thanks for joining us, and I'll let you fill in any uh, gaps that I missed on your introduction. Well, great, guys. Thanks for having me today. Now, I think I think you captured it. So I was the M&A attorney from Wall Street, became a management consultant and investment banker, but then stumbled accidentally into the EB-5 world probably 12, 13 years ago now. And I thought, well, that's an interesting little corner of the finance universe. And so I put together actually my company, E3 Investment Group, to be a kind of private equity firm consultancy, public policy shop sort of because of Shay, um, you know, focused on EB-5 and have, you know, really been doing that since. And, uh, and it, you know, it was, it was an interesting walk starting off uh, becoming the editor of the legal treaties about the EB-5 program published by ILW. And then, you know, using that as a springboard to start working with uh, Harvard Kennedy School, the White House, um, you know, we used to, you know, uh, in, in Congress as well. And, you know, all culminating to the uh, testimony in 2016 in front of the Judiciary Committee. You know, and a lot of people, when they look at EB-5 now, they say, oh, there's this, you know, walled garden approach and, you know, to the set-asides, market employment areas, and uh, and actually it also, you know, two of the three guys on this call, me and Shay. So, um, you know, in that original testimony. So it's, it was it was a great exercise in where the guys with the ideas actually were able to have an impact on the public policy formation cycle. Um, so that was, you know, great experience and, you know, just gonna continuing forward. Well, we appreciate it, Matt. And, and I feel like I'm here with some EB-5 loyalty. I think last time Shay and I, we were on a podcast and we talked about, um, or Shay showed me some um, proposed uh, legislation or proposed uh, changes to the rules and the amounts and things like that. I think you and Shay probably worked on that a little bit together, but it was so close to the amounts that we have now. If only people would have listened seven years ago instead of waiting seven years later and having all the issues that we've had with EB-5. But once again, we appreciate, Matt, um, everything that you've done for EB-5 and, and joining us here. Um, quick question for you. Like, just as a background, kind of tell us your involvement, your EB-5 projects and, and prior EB-5 involvement, just some, maybe some projects that you're involved in and kind of roles that you played um, maybe early on and then maybe towards... Um, the latter part of, of the last run of EB-5? So, you know, I, I when I started getting into EB-5, there were already a number of dominant companies that were doing what I'll call like the cookie cutters. A lot of the real estate deals that look very, very similar. 
And, and so I started focusing on kind of the quirky oddball stuff, especially with my background as a corporate mergers and acquisitions attorney from Wall Street. Sophisticated structure is, is, is kind of what I do. So I would look at a lot of people um, and, what, and their goals in terms of allowing their projects and their business dreams to qualify for EB-5 investment and was able to come up with structural solutions um, on the corporate side. So I started, you know, doing lots of different things, everything from, you know, small health clinics to, um, you know, to auto body shops and, you know, and everything, in, you know, in between. So it's, so I worked on projects like that, um, you know, started even working a bit with the investors and, you know, again, from the business law background, was able to work on some very, very difficult source of funds cases. Sometimes I'm even brought in to help after the fact when people don't quite get it right, both on the corporate structuring side or on the on the investor side. So I kind of work all across the industry. And a lot of times when people say, no, that's a little too hard, not the way we do it, sometimes those guys end up in my shop and we're able to take it through for them. So when you say that you worked on both sides of it, is there is there a side that you enjoyed more or was it just really different experiences for, because obviously I work on the investor side, Shay works on the deal side. We both understand each other's side, but we don't get involved <laughs> with that. So it, you know, I, it, to a degree, I like the intellectual challenge. So I just had a client <laughs> call me up and, you know, it's one of these cases. It's the father is in China. The mother is in the U.S. with a 19 year old son. And the mother's here in, with a pending asylum refugee status. And so, you know, there's all the interplays of, you know, the child aging out how it all works with having the family split between the two countries, concurrent adjustment of status. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's a funky one. So it's not your bread and butter sort of case. Um, you know, so those those get to be fun. And, you know, we had another sponsor calls up and, and want to do some work in, in a kind of um, stu student housing management type structure. And these are the ones where there's no business plan that exists for that type of business. So I sit down with them almost like when I was an old management consultant, and you don't just document what the deal is. You ask the question, what could it be? What should it be? And, and that allows you to explore both the business from a business optimization standpoint, but also from an EB-5 compliance standpoint. And that's really where I kind of Know, fit in the industry because not a lot of people play on both sides of the equation um, and so and it, and it is very intellectually stimulating and it's kind of cool and you get into the you know thinking about the policy start of it and then just how do you accomplish the client's goals so Matt I want to circle back on more fun times in EB-5 uh, what was that 2000 <laughs> yeah it's, it's 2017 I believe you had the opportunity to testify to the Senate Judiciary Committee on potential EB-5 reforms, and it was your testimony was incredibly impactful. Um, the, the party afterwards was even better, but let's stick to the testimony here. Uh, we just kind of lay the lay the provide an overview of the reforms that you suggested, and maybe which ones were enacted uh, into the actual uh, EB-5 Reform and Integrity Act, and which ones weren't. Sure. So, so the ones that, that the ones they listen to, you know, one thing that I, I tried to get across to to the committee was that there are two currencies in EB five, and it's literally almost a quote out of it: time and money. And the whole 
purpose. And the, the, so, first of all, the whole testimony was about targeted employment area policy. Is it a failure or is it a success? And the conclusion was it was a resounding failure because 99% of all money ended up in TEAs and you could make a TEA anywhere. One time I went over to brief some congressional staff and I had just gotten um, Times Square, New York City, designated as a targeted employment area. <laughs> I don't really think that Times Square needed any additional help to attract development capital. So the purpose of the policy was to steer money and create an incentive for people to invest money in geographical areas that wouldn't have otherwise gotten it. That's the whole purpose of the incentive. So you could get almost any address in America qualified as a TEA. So the policy meant nothing because the money just went where the developers want. They just got it to sell EV5 units at a cheaper rate. So I said, if you want to motivate people, you have to do what's meaningful to them. One, there needs to be a, a meaningful delta in the cost between TEA and non-TEA investments. And two, almost more important, there needs to be a delta in time. And time yeah. can really potentially matter. And especially as we now see, you have over five-year education times for I-526s. Well, now it gets to be really impactful when you say, well, there's potential priority processing on rural-based TEAs. Now, we as practitioners today don't know what that really means. I've had conversations with many people, and they think a year-ish. Yep. We're kind of coming up on when that might be. Well, I was, I was going to... I was going to ask you that because I get asked that question every day. I say, well, what it's supposed to be and what's actually going on, we don't know yet. Well, I mean, we do know how to start working with them very successfully. And, um, and so expedite have some meaningful teeth. You know, we do know that our clients who were able to get expedites for, you know, come in between six and about 10 or 11 months. And we find the delta there is simply a function of the relative complexity of their source of funds. And that's fair, fair. When you have a in general, 526s were supposed to have six months adjudication time in the statute. And USCIS, USCIS routinely blows through those mandates. So will they actually, um, you know, adhere to the mandate of giving a priority processing to rural-based TEAs? Nobody knows right now. Do you think, um, just following up on what you're saying, where legislation has went and where we're at with the Reform Act now, do you think... Um, you think it was a step in the right direction? Do you think there's just more that can be done? I don't want to put you on the spot, but kind of what your thoughts are. I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a policy guy. And so I actually recently went back to my alma mater, Cornell University. They have a new Brooks School of Public Policy, and I came to give some lectures. And we really used EB-5 as a case study of the policy formation process. It worked. So let's look what's going on out there. There's more money flowing into rural and genuine urban high unemployment TEAs than ever before in the EB-5 program. Yes. Full stop. The policy's working. Is it perfect? Could it be better? Of course it's not perfect, and of course it could be better. But it was it a major step in the right direction? Absolutely. Would I like to see more than a quarter million dollar delta between TEAs and non-TEAs? Yeah, I would. And I remember sitting you know, with congressional staff at USCIS talking about how much is enough to motivate and you know and the horse trading that was going on but it seems to be very motivational to people to save that quarter of a million dollars um it's very motivational to people to at least have the idea and the promise of faster adjudication times with rural-based tea so right now i think the policy is working quite profoundly
Yeah, and Matt, you know, one thing we like to ask our guest is, you know, give us an EB-5 war story. As we know, I think we all love EB-5 because the intellectual challenge involves immigration, private equity, real estate, hopefully not white collar crime, uh, but other things, right? Economics. Uh, so give us kind of one of your favorite stories. One of my favorite recent war stories is we were, we were, I was working with a client and it was kind of during that period where EB-5 was best and, you know, they stayed regulations and increased the minimum investment quite a bit. And I was going to work with this client actually to do EB-2 investment. And then all of a sudden, that nice little judge invalidated the Trump administration rule and it went back down to 500000 so I said, you want a green card for pretty much the same amount. So I said, sure, let's do it. And we had started, I started, I was actually working, doing some structuring work with a project that back in the days when, you know, before, when, before the regional center program expired for that big gap, that eight or nine month gap, they had actually gotten an expedite for their regional center. And so I said, you know what, the legal basis for getting an expedite, whether it's the regional center and the investors, identical. The premise is the same. Each actually have to apply for it separately. But if they give it to one, there's no reason yeah. why they right. There's no reason why a regional center should get it, and then an investor in that regional center's project shouldn't get it. What's the premise, Matt, for our listeners? So the, the, these were opioid addiction clinics. Um, so you know, Biden prices and they're building these things in in Appalachia and low-income areas, like really, really, so creating a tremendous amount of social good and social value. And so they wanted for the regional center. Regional center went away. We restructured everything for, for this investor to be direct EB-5, um, back when he was a multiple investor direct EB-5s, and then said, okay, let's go to the expedite. And then summarily, USCIS rejected the expedite. And that's a non-appealable decision. So we were like, holy cow, how could they do that? That's completely illogical. So everybody rallied their, their troops. We were able to get Senator Manchin involved and so he opened a congressional inquiry, and I remember I was actually sitting with my son, um, and we were visiting Georgetown University, so in Washington, on with Manchin staff, and I'm like banging on a park bench because I was outside saying, if this doesn't change, people will die. And you don't get to say that a lot. Yeah, right. You know, who's investing in opioid addiction clinics in West Virginia? If this money doesn't flow through EBI, yeah. clinics aren't built, people die. And so I was personally outraged because the, for the expedite policy, this was the poster child project. Of course it should have been approved, and of course every investor should be approved. So we, we kind of rallied management's office, um, you know, got some people in the White House involved, and then was able to convince USCIS that they had a training issue, and they, on their own, sui sponte, reversed an unappealable decision granted my client an expedite, and then have since granted 100% of the project's clients expedites. So now opioid addiction clinics are being built. So it was a win for the individual client. We've mountains of very special things. That was a great case study. But it was also a win for America. We, we are now getting capital flowing into rural districts, creating very, very socially beneficial projects that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And so we're really proud of our work. We did this both for the individual and just part of the well, that, that, that's that's awesome. amazing to hear. I mean, that's I mean, when you look at EV five, that was the purpose of EV five. When you're when you're looking at it, getting into rural areas, taking job creation, and then on top of that, the benefit to the U.S., the benefit that you're having. So that's great to hear. Let me ask you, just going back on that, what was USCIS's position on why they denied the expedite? I'm just kind of curious. Oh, you know USCIS. Oh yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> 
we don't know, and they couldn't explain it to Senator Manchin's staff, so I guess uh, they decided it was a good idea to not fight that fight. Yeah, well, we see that all the time, and we're, you know, you know, we've been getting, you know, as, as, as everybody does, you get some RFEs on investor petitions, and they tell you that they want more documentation for source of funds, but they don't tell you what they want. It's, it's, an, it's an impressive way to, uh, to operate, but yeah, we do see it all the time. How many times do you respond to an RFE telling them where in the original conditions we've already given it? All the time. It's so true. All the time. <laughs> so true. I guess they skipped those 300 pages, but that's that's okay. I think, I think my favorite RFE war story was when they returned a petition to a colleague of mine saying that they didn't have the mailing address, but they mailed it back. That's impressive. Oh, that's good. They didn't have the mailing address. That's good. That's why you have psychics. So what, what are you working on now? Tell me what you're working on now. That We've had all the reforms changed and, and you're an EB-5. You know, I, so I do a lot. So even the investment group, we do a lot of things. So we're very heavily focused on our private equity work. Um, you guys, I'm, I'm sure we all talk about it. So it's a pickleball now. Yeah. Um, so we're $180 million worth of indoor pickleball facilities in, in and around Florida to expand after. <clears throat> and that's actually... Not, I mean, we did actually take a couple of E2 investors into the areas of that, so there's some immigration investment bent to that. But generally speaking, it's, it's, it's stayed on the pure private equity side. Um, in terms of the EB5 portfolio, you know, we have a couple of projects we're working with that are doing, you know, a lot of times we're working with projects that are not marketing to third-party investors. It's within close groups of friends, families, so we do a lot of that sort of bespoke work. Hmm. You just, you'll never hear the projects, you'll never see them, and they do need a high degree of customization that's not your cookie-cutter type thing, and which is where it makes a lot of sense for me to get involved. We do a little bit of cookie-cutter work, too, and then sometimes we just work with investors, especially with our experience in the expedites, um, when they have these difficult cases where time really matters, um, especially very, very complex source of funds. You know, I, I don't I don't get intimidated when it's just crazy kind of stories and com complexity and thousands and thousands of pages. We tend to we tend to focus on that sort of stuff. So, you know, a, a little bit on the investor side as investor counsel and then a little bit on the project side, um, you know, for those. We're seeing what we're seeing, I think Shay and I are both seeing this is just last three months especially, but maybe last six months just this massive increase in interest in EV5. Obviously, the, the program being more stable where it's at, all, it helps. What, what do you think is causing the spike in interest in EV5? Privacy contents have been updated. To continue, review the updated items on your screen. I think there's a lot of marketing. Now, you remember the program with, the regional center program was in hiatus for the better part of a year, and that really killed things. There was a lot of uncertainty and chaos, and uncertainty, as you guys well know, in any legal system is just the death knell. So no one yeah. knows what to do. Regional lack of confidence in the regional center program. What you know, they were on the verge of invalidating tens of thousands of applications. So it was a real chaos in the system. You, and so now the new law that came out you know, last July really helped stabilize things, which was which was great. But at the same time, you now see the world become a much less stable place. So let's take a look at China, for example. You know, the, the Xi administration, it is not the same. I have, you know, Chinese-American developer clients and have deep ties there. The wealthy are genuinely afraid. There um, are crackdowns against corruption, crackdowns against the wealthy, difficulty in getting money out. Not like, it's not business as usual stuff. 
from five and six and ten years ago that we were all used to. It is a totally different mandate out there than what's going on in China. And, and they're really kind of socially reconstructing the, the country. And a lot of the gains in terms of economic social liberalization that have gone on over the last 20 years are now being unwound. And the newly wealthy class are really afraid. So you're getting that push. Then you see on the European side with the Russian war in, in aggression yeah. in the Ukraine is causing a lot of fear and uncertainty. I mean, India is always India. There's always a tremendous amount of demand out of India. Um, you know, you, you're also seeing the Modi administration kind of take a kind of harder yeah. line, and, and especially in the religion aspects of the politics. So we're seeing a lot of demand there. And then I'd say the thing, the icing on the cake is the recent layoffs in the with technology employers have suddenly taken all of these H-1Bs that have just been kind of pushed along for the last decade or two, having no hope of getting green cards, now realizing tying their immigration status to their employment status is a bad idea. And we've been telling them that since my earliest days in EB-5. And now, you know, they're getting laid off and they have you know, 90 days to get a job. And that's impossible in this market. And their kids are born here, their lives are here, and all of a sudden they may face having to leave the country. So you're getting a lot of interest, just kind of all of these things at the same time the confluence is, is, is fueling the sudden demand. That makes sense. I mean, that's kind of what we're seeing. And then you add that the interest, the increase in interest rates in the U.S. from a developer standpoint, I'm looking for, you know, cheaper capital, essentially. So I think that makes sense. Matt, thanks so much for coming on. The pickleball godfather <laughs> of New York and, and, and the Southeast. Uh, we, we, we really appreciate it. You have so much insight. You've been involved in this game, when I say EB5, and pickleball, uh, for a long time. And so your insights are incredible. Uh, I owe you dinner. Last time you were in town, it was one of those events where kids and wife and everyone had the stomach virus, and I canceled on you last minute. It's actually probably my turn to go up to New York and buy you dinner, and that's what I'll do. That sounds good. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on today, and thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you. Matt. Have Talk a great soon. day. Thank you.